On this week's episode of the Bet the Process podcast, this is actually the first of two episodes this week. It's the first of our two Masters previews. But first, we start by recapping the national championship game for college basketball before we move on to an interview with ESPN's Michael Collins, who is a former full-time PGA Tour caddy. Before that, he was a stand-up comedian, and he has a lot of insights not only about the Masters, but about golf and caddying in general. And it's an interview I've been looking forward to for a long time. So without further ado, let's start the process. Bet the process. Welcome to the podcast. Bet the process. It's not that typical cookie cutter nonsense. If you came just for picks, you're in the wrong place. Find a talent with the narrative to make a strong case. Instead of blindly assuming a team must be tanking, we're looking for the edge of Massey Peabody rankings. Crunching all the numbers in a simulated system that break down the data analytically driven. Media coverage of sports gambling is... Welcome to the latest episode of the Bet the Process podcast. This is Rufus's favorite week of the year because it's like Christmas, Rufus. Is it like Christmas? You know, most years it is. But, I mean, last year was like Christmas when you've been a bad boy, though. So you got a lump of coal in your stocking because you bet against Bubba Watson Uh, over and over again? I got multiple lumps of coal because of (laughs) Bubba Watson. And because I I think Bubba Watson and Henrik Stenson were the lumps of coal that... That That kept on giving? Yeah, I don't think the analogy really works. But see, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't have that... an end in mind when I started it, but it wasn't good. It wasn't good last year. And so if if you bet on my recommendations last year to fade Bubba and, and Henrik, you know, you probably are living on the street that I'm looking down on from my view right now. And I'm sorry for your loss. <laughs> um, what was interesting about that last year was that, even though like the Bubba thing was interesting because Bubba looked bad at different times, but still somehow managed to pull it together to screw you over on Sunday. He did. And you know, I think I had like maybe eight matchups against him. And I think I won (laughs) one of them might've pushed one, but it still wasn't good. And it's not like it would have been good if, you know, even if you take that out, it was still, even if you take out Bubba entirely, it was still a really bad Masters for me. So, yeah. yeah. Well, this year will be better. I guarantee yeah, it because it, it probably it, can't be worse. So, in the Masters, I think all time is the best betting event for me. And so, yeah, but what have you done for us lately, Rufus? That's, that's a, a good, key. that's a good question. Rufus is kind of on a high right now because UVA just won the national championship of college basketball. And that's a big deal to him because Is he's it? from Virginia. Oh, but I've never been to Charlottesville. I didn't go to UVA, but I but do you like Dave Matthews, him. right? That's a pretty much the same thing. I mean, Jeff, I'm a white boy who grew up in Northern Virginia. In so you love Dave Matthews. He's a millennial. <laughs> At one point, I, I listened to a lot of Dave Matthews. Did you? Did you? you ever, did you ever listen to a lot of Dave? But I've never seen him. Live no, I'm too. I'm older than the Dave Matthews generation. So I like the, the college band that I listened to with all, well, actually in high school was fish back in the yeah, day. I mean, but fish is timeless. Not with fish, a fish is timeless fish. It's not like fish was not my time. Fish was yeah. my time as well. So anyway, what did you think we, about? Should we get, what, to, should we get, should we get to some of this? 
Um, I thought it started really boring and ended up being quite exciting. You know, it it seems like UVA has just made these timely shots time and time again. Yeah, it's pretty crazy, right? Because, you know, like we always joke about like how people create narratives and all this kind of stuff. This is one of those moments that the narrative, like it was so true. The idea that this team that had this catastrophic loss, the worst loss, literally the worst loss in the history of college basketball then comes back the next year to win the championship in like the most dramatic way possible. Well, the most dramatic way, like times every game. That's what I'm saying. Like the most, the last three games were, they were basically the last three games. They probably had close to a 99% win probability to lose like loss probability. They probably were down to close to a 1% win probability. Both on all one percent. Were you watching the same games as me? Well, what do you think? What do you think they were like? And they, they were, were down. Give give me give me the one percent times. Like down. So what do you four, think? Wait, wait, down what do you four think the win probability like 15 is? Seconds. What's that? I mean, I, I'm guessing it's down four when you're with like under. 20 not seconds. not tonight, but the the last two games, they were they got pretty low in terms of win probability. Maybe not ninety nine percent. Okay, maybe that was yeah. dramatic. I mean, against Auburn, you know, they were up 10 with like six minutes to go, right? And then they but, were also down four with 20 seconds to go. That's that, my point. That's the one. Right, right. But it's still not 1%. Okay, fine. What do you think it was? I don't, okay, so what, what are the chances? You can of do the win a, probability calculator. Okay, okay. Let, let's do this. What are the chances of making a three-pointer? No, no, no. You you can't do this out in your head. You actually well, I mean, have to like. I know, but but we can we can kind of ballpark it by doing it in our head. Let's say let's say they have a one in three chance of making a three pointer, um, that pulls it to one. Then they foul immediately. Then they're going to be rushed, and then like they make you know, if they make then they basically have to hit another three pointer to force overtime, um, which will give them let's say you know it's probably under pressure. Let's say thirty percent. Um, well, so, okay. So let's say you're basically one, three, we can estimate one and three, one and three, it's one and nine. I have a win probability calendar in front of me. So, so I, and count. then, so, so, so I'll say 5% there. Rufus, you don't what does it even say? care to listen right now. So well, they were down we're... by, they were down by four with 18 seconds left and the other team had the ball. I, I'm going 5% off the top of my head. No, no, the other team, no, they had the ball. The the other team did not have the ball. Oh, meaning they had the ball, sorry. Yeah. 17 seconds. So that was 96.7. So that was like 3.3%. Okay, I I was fairly close. I said 5%. So then I was also fairly close because I said 1%. Yeah, but I was closer. (laughs) Fairly. If you're going based on percentage points rather than a logit function. How about this? How about this? They had one second left, and they were down by two with the ball. I mean, that that's okay. No, I'm I'm checking what it is. This is one where I think your average win probability calculator can be off because it it does it know where the ball was inbound from because that's a huge huge factor. Of course. Okay. So that was ninety seven point seven. So that's two point eight. I would, I would totally. I, I, if if you gave me fifty to one, actually, well, that would, if you gave me 
30 to one, I would take it every time. Like you can catch and shoot. You do not need to tip it in. It was 1.5, right? Uh, it was 1.2, I think well, it was. Okay, but enough time to catch and shoot. Like, do you really think the chance of making that shot is like 10% or less? Hold on. Now I want to look at what the. Like, the... 10, even if it's a two pointer, 10% chance of making a two pointer, you know, you know, assume 50% in overtime. Like, this win, whose win probability calculator is this? Uh, it's a very smart person's win probability calculator. Okay, so okay, in so. the in the Purdue game, the worst it got for them. Let's like, just see what cool. down three with six seconds left. Sorry, yeah, down three with seventeen seconds left to go. I wonder what that is. Well, what about like the thing mm-hmm. was Purdue made the really smart decision to foul before they could get the shot off. So it right. basically won the game for Purdue. Or it should have won the game. And if it wasn't for the miraculous... You know like, that's not like a really smart thing, right? It's about 50-50. No, it's... You foul it, or not foul. No, fouling's the right move. You want... you want Like, go read any of Ken Palm's stuff. Like, does it Ken decides Palm... How much, it depends how much time is left when you do it, obviously. If you're, fouling, if you're fouling with five seconds left, if a team is down three and you foul them... With five seconds left and they get two shots, that's very like you cannot tell me that's not the smart move. I it's not by it's not by a With large five margin. Seconds it's, a tiny, left. it's a tiny margin difference. It's this has been well this has been well documented and written yeah. about. Well, tell me about it then. Because to me that doesn't make sense. Because the percentage of making a contested three is also just as tough. And if you foul too early, that they can play it. They can play it back. I mean, no, it's just. But we're saying five seconds left. We'll have to so, get Ken so, Palm on. Jeff, if you foul with five seconds left, they shoot two free throws. You have to inbound the ball, or you shoot two free throws. They have to inbound the ball. Basic, like assuming you don't get a steal, you foul immediately, and then there's like four and a half seconds left. They go down and shoot, and then you literally have to go. Can do what that you also do what they did, which is make one and miss one and get the offensive rebound. Do you know what the percentage of getting that offensive rebound is? Not very high. Well, like, what, what do you think it is? I, I, you well, have no idea. You know no, I do. Which means that I'll, you can't actually have this argument well, with, with with like something that's what been well researched. Base rates on offensive rebounding is very low, but. I feel like, you know, when a team is selling out for that offensive rebound, it becomes a little bit higher and they probably don't call the fouls there as much as they should for over the back. So I would, I would still guess less than like 15 to 20%. What right. would you say? So what do you think the percentage of making that three, a contested three is? One in, you know, 30% maybe? No, it's definitely less it, than 30%. <laughs> With 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 eighteen seconds to go, or with five seconds to go, like you're gonna get you you better be able to get a three that's better than thirty percent. I'd say your average contested three is definitely thirty percent. But anyway, we are we're, we're 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 getting into the weeds here. Yeah, and we're getting into the weeds to something that neither of us knows that well, which is kind of sad that we're having this argument. Yeah. So, anyways. Ken Palm has a whole thing about this, 
And basically, it is slightly better to foul, but it's not like a huge margin difference. Uh, you know, I always thought, just based on common sense, that it was like big time the right decision to foul. But I also like it. We're not talking with like twenty seconds left. We're talking within like ten seconds. But um, you know, I've never. I don't have the data on it. And, and I always thought the risk was that you foul and the guy ends up getting three free throws because he makes it into a shooting foul. Of course, like that figures yeah. into all of it. My point is that like, it is slightly better to foul, but you made a big deal to say like, it's the brilliant thing for them to do is, you know, and I'm just saying like, yes, it was a smarter thing for them to do, but it wasn't. Well, Anywho. Let's move Jeff, on. Jeff, you always talk about like, oh, you know, this was the great, it was a great decision to go for fourth down here, like fourth and one, like, or whatever. And, right. and, and you always push back on me and say it was marginally different. So the, we're taking both sides. So we should probably stop this conversation because it's boring right now. Okay. For everyone listening. Okay. So let's get into the Masters. Let's do it. Do you want to say anything about it? Or are you just too, you're going to wait and expose all of your, smartness later on in the week well i want to say something a little bit about our our guest that we have upcoming who we we actually interviewed yesterday but but i have been i'm really excited to have michael on and and i have been for a while and michael is during my time at espn um i got to know him and i got to spend some time inside the ropes uh at a tournament event with him and and i i listened to his podcast and one thing i love about him is that he you know, he's friends with everybody on tour. Like he knows, like he, he's, he has a good relationship with just about every player, but at the same time, he will call them out. Like he called out Kucher on what happened and, and he is someone that he's not going to sugarcoat it for anybody. And so I feel like that, that makes him a, a pretty damn good interview. So I, I'm, I'm pretty excited to have him on. Awesome. And who is it? Did I not say his name in that whole thing? I don't know if you did. Michael I Collins. Think. Okay. Michael ESPN Collins. Former caddy. ESPN caddy. Yes. He is the, a former full-time tour caddy for a number of golfers. I think Scott Piercy, Kevin Streelman, Omar Resti, um, Robert Gamez, and there's somebody else I'm missing. I wrote, I wrote down the names at some point. but Oh, Brendan Pappas. Anyway. Anywho, yeah. all right. Well, we're about to play that interview for you. We're going to come back later on in the week with some more interesting Masters content. But for now, enjoy Michael Collins. We now welcome in Michael Collins, caddy extraordinaire, caddy to the stars. <laughs> Obviously, someone that uh, knows a ton about golf. And with uh, Augusta coming up this week, we're going to try to give you as much good golf content as possible. This is near and dear to Rufus's heart, so I will let him take over. Well, welcome, Michael. Thanks, man. Thank you all for having me on. I'm looking forward to having some fun. No, I've, I've been looking forward to having you on for a long time. You know, I, I feel like your story is, is super unique and interesting. I, I don't know if everybody knows this, but, but Michael was a, a stand-up comedian first. And, and can you kind of tell us how you, how you ended up transitioning from a comedian to a caddy to a to ESPN's <laughs> yeah. caddy slash on air talent slash podcast host. Yeah, you know it's the same old story. You know this is how everybody gets in. <laughs> I did stand up comedy professionally for twenty years, and uh, 
got into caddying by accident, was actually performing in Hilton Head in 1998, the week that the tournament was there. My buddy of mine invited me out to the tournament, met a bunch of golfers and caddies. They ended up coming to pretty much every show from Tuesday through Saturday. And I got the golf bug real bad. So I decided I was going to start booking comedy wherever the tour was. So in the daytime, I would hang out on the golf course with the golfers and caddies. And at night, then I would do my shows. And then one week, a golfer, Robert Gomez, called me up and said he wasn't having fun on the golf course and asked me if I was just caddy for him for a week so we could just have fun on the course. And then other golfers kind of gave me their phone numbers and said, hey, call me when you got a week off. And I really fell in love with caddying. And that kind of snowballed. And then through that, in caddying for a guy named Brendan Pappas, uh, he was doing an outing and they were asking him about, you know, there was a new TV show coming out on USA Network called PGA Tour Sunday. And he told one of the producers, oh, you should talk to my, my caddy. He's a professional comedian. And I ended up on USA Network for five seasons uh, doing that show. And through that then, and caddying, Sirius XM came. That's not an ambulance for me, don't worry. <laughs> through that, Sirius XM reached out and said, hey, on the weeks that you're not doing stand-up or caddying, how about doing play-by-play on the radio? And my first response was, golf on the radio. Well, it's hard enough to watch paint dry. Like, now y'all think people are going to listen to it? And little did I know, the head of ESPN Digital, he actually, I mean, basically the head of ESPN is a closet golf nut and heard me doing play-by-play and interviewing players and then reached out to me through uh, an editor on Twitter. So I always tell people I got my job on ESPN on Twitter, and I've been with them now for six years. So anytime a journalism student uh, hits me up on email and is like, you know, hey, I'm a sophomore in college and I want to do what you do, I'm like, I'm the wrong guy to ask because I failed high school English and never went to college. So I don't know how to do what you're doing, so I wouldn't know how to tell you to do what I did. So it's pretty – it's a crazy journey that I've been on, and the fact that I've ended up here um, makes me truly believe in karma. Well, I think you and I both have roots that, that definitely weren't straightforward and didn't end up where we expected them to. But um, <laughs> Nah, nah. It's funny how all it is is it's opportunity, man. That's what it is. It's opportunity and not being afraid to go, yeah, what the hell? I'll try it. Why not? You know, not being afraid. And sometimes you're going to fail. Sometimes it's going to take you down crazy paths that lead where we are right now. And, you know, enjoying the journey and having fun, that's what it's all about. And now the fact that somebody writes me a paycheck to goof off on camera with golfers and celebrities and athletes and all kinds of other stuff. I still shake my head wondering if the alarm clock is ever going to go off. Well, I, I can vouch for you that you have a pretty awesome job. I got to I got to be inside the ropes with you at, at, in Phoenix back in 2017. And, you know, it was like, you know, your boys with, with Larry Fitzgerald and, and I had to go get Michael Phelps a vodka tonic and a gin and tonic, right? Because you didn't know which one he wanted. <laughs> oh, that was awesome. He was so shook up on the golf course, man. That was great. I just reminded him of that this past year, too. So how, how do you know everybody? Because golf is in everything. That was It's funny. When I was doing stand-up comedy, it was another comedian who made me start playing golf. 
because I, I didn't start playing golf until I was 22, 23, because for me it was like we made fun of golfers when I was in high school and junior high and stuff like that. Those are the kids that I could chase home from school because those are the kids, you know, my little short, fat behind, we're the only ones I could intimidate. <laughs> so, you know, golf was just never the cool thing to do. And, and it was another comedian who told me, you got to learn how to play golf. And I was like, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. But he said golf is in every industry. And he was right. His name was Lee Schaefer. And he was like, he took me out to this little par three track. And he was a lefty, which, again, karma, because I played hockey lefty. So he had a set of wedges that he let me borrow. And it was $2.50. And I was like, this is going to be so stupid. Because I thought it looked so easy. Like the ball's just sitting there. No one's, it ain't, no one's doing nothing. No one's yelling or no one's trying to tackle you. No one's throwing it at you or nothing. Like how hard could it be? And then just trying to hit a shot a hundred yards was maddening. It was crazy. And when we finished, he was like, what do you think? And I told him, I got $5. I'm going to keep doing it. And then he goes, here's what you do. Call a comedy club and tell them you just want to come perform. And then call a comedy club and tell them, hey, I'm coming down. I'm going to be golfing close by. And I was wondering if I could swing up and do five minutes on stage and see which one lets you come. And the, every time I called a comedy club and said I was going to be golfing, either the manager or the owner of the comedy club was like, oh, where are you going to play? Yeah, come on in. Let's, we can go tee it up. And anytime I called a comedy club and was like, hey, my name is Michael Collins, I would like to do five minutes you have an open mic and they would be like oh send a tape so that was kind of a light bulb going off for me where he was right and then from usa network uh one of the segments that i did was called open mic and i went to these tournaments like back in the day when bob hope was all celebrities and athletes and you know same thing with pebble back in the day a few years ago it was like the A-list celebrities and A-list athletes and like all of those do. And I was, and I got to interview a lot of those guys, but you know, coming from my background in comedy, I try to treat everyone the same. And from, from being a caddy as well. I mean, I, I don't care what your job title is. I want to know what makes you cool as a person. And if you're a cool person, then I want to talk to you and hang out. And so I treat everyone the exact same, regardless of if you're a janitor or the president. And I can honestly say, like, I got the sitting secretary of state to call a golf shot live on the radio just because I was goofing off with Madam Secretary Condoleezza Rice at the time. And <laughs> I've spoken to President Bush and President Clinton and sat and talked with Jordan and stuff, but it's it's all because of golf, because golf is the great sport that everyone ends up coming to. If you're a CEO, if you run a business, you're probably going to do deals on the golf course. If, and regardless if you're male or female, if you're one of the greatest athletes in hockey, baseball, basketball, I mean, think about when Alex Ovechkin doesn't say to himself in the hockey offseason, hey, you guys want to play baseball? You never hear Steph Curry go, hey, after this, I'm going to go play some tennis with some buddies of mine. Like, but you will hear Aaron Rodgers and Steph Curry and Alex Ovechkin and, you know, Bryce Harper, Mike Dry. You name it. You name the athlete 
and guess what they're going to go do? They're going to go play golf. So they all golf. And it's crazy how, yeah, it's, that's what I mean. It's crazy how all of these dudes from all these different sports and all these athletes end up coming to golf. And as a guy who was caddied on the PGA Tour and hung around the best golfers in the world, the flip side of that coin that's so cool is we on the PGA Tour, golfers, caddies, we give them the same Google eyes that they give us. Because they're like, yo, I'll never forget. I'm in, I was at uh, Maui. And if you remember the show Entourage, the character Turtle, the guy who plays Turtle, he was there, Jerry. And really cool dude. And I'll never forget, he was like, you know, there goes Anthony Kim. Yo, there goes Ernie Els. And I was like, yeah, you want to meet him? And he was like, what? And I go, come on, man. And Scotty, Scotty Cameron, the butter maker's there. And so I go to Ernie. I was like, hey, man, I, can I introduce you to a, you know, a friend of mine? And Ernie's like, oh, snap, that's the dude from Entourage. And this is Ernie Els. And he's like, oh, snap. And so then I introduce him, and they start talking and whatnot. The same with Scotty Cameron. And the same with Anthony Kim, and it's like golf brings all of these people together from walks of life. They would never have just randomly met like that. And the fact that everybody respects one another and their craft like that just is, it's one of the coolest things that I've ever gotten to tell people that I get to be a part of. So everybody golfs, but what does everybody else do? They gamble. And I'm guessing just about everybody also gambles on golf. Right. I don't know anyone. Honestly, this is just honest. I don't know anyone who I've ever played golf with who has not gambled on golf. And I, and I don't mean like, and I mean like on the golf course when you're playing, let's play for a dollar. Let's play, what, play for a soda. Like I, I don't know anyone who's never done that before so that's one of those other things that here and here in the united states it's pretty new but over in europe that was one of the things that fascinated me and i found that out when i was doing play-by-play on sirius xm is that they would listen to the broadcast over there and then listen and then make bets accordingly now over here most of the time you can only gamble on either who's going to win or you can do one-on-one stuff. But over there, they have scenarios that are set up where they'll pay out like the top six or top seven, depending on the house that you go to. So yeah, the each way. it's a whole different style over there. Yeah, it's crazy how they do, do the each way. I can't wait till that comes to the United States because that makes it a lot of fun and real challenging. But still, the fact that everyone gambles on golf and now has access to do it in a legal fun matter, it's really, it's, it's just fun. It's a fun thing to do. So have you ever, have you ever bet on golf yourself? I mean, because presumably you have a lot of inside information um, that the average Joe, like, or Jeff or Rufus doesn't have. Yeah, but I don't see, this is the funny thing about the game of golf. No matter how good someone looks in practice, got nothing to do with how they're going to play on the golf course. I know plenty of guys, I know plenty of caddies who will tell you on a Wednesday night, whatever you do, don't bet on my guy because he's hitting it sideways. And that dude will win the tournament. 
Really? That's more interesting. Than 10 times, more than 10 times I've had guys jokingly say to me, don't bet on my dude, he's hitting it sideways. And I've seen him hitting it sideways in practice and on the driving range, and that guy wins. That's the other thing, the maddening thing about golf, is that all it takes is one swing for something to click, and then it's, like, amazing. And some guy who could be on a crazy run playing – Let's say he has four top fours in a row. You're like, well, this dude is rolling. How can he miss? And the next week he misses the cut by a mile. Well, I was going to say it only takes one bad shot to like get yourself in a whole hell of a lot of trouble. At least for me, I can be playing decently, and then suddenly it's like a snowman on a par four. It's easier even for pros to crash and burn than it is to get into and stay in the quote-unquote zone. Even for pros. No, no. Along those lines, I mean, Jordan Spieth yesterday missed, um, missed. Well, had, didn't hit a single fairway through his first ten holes. He shot six over on the front, and like the most common area he hit it to was unknown and native area, according to the shot. <laughs> so, like the, the rough right. was a good shot off the tee for him. So, and, and right. then, then, then the last seven seven holes um, on the back nine, he hits every fairway and, and shoots five under. Like. Is that, you know, I'm curious. How do guys do that? Yeah, and what do you think that means? Like, just, I mean, Spieth, I I feel like there's a lot of discussion about Spieth and, and, you know, how he's not the golfer he used to be and, and, you know, is, is, you know, does he have a chance at Augusta? That's so awesome. Oh, absolutely, he's got a chance at at Augusta. That's the one place. There are two golfers that don't work. It doesn't matter how they're playing before they get there. It don't matter. One of them is Jordan Spieth, and the other is Phil Mickelson. Like, throw everything out the window when it comes to Jordan Spieth and Phil Mickelson and the Masters because the Masters for them is like a comfy old sweatshirt that looks ragged and terrible, and everybody wants all the new cool clothes. But, man, they just – if you say that, boom, that's, that's game over. Of this, I mean, Speed's pretty young. Speed doesn't have the same experience that, that Mickelson does. I mean, he's he's been one of the best players at Augusta. But what is it, do you think, that, that makes somebody good at Augusta? Number one, you got to be all-world confident with putting. All-world confident. you got to believe – you got to believe that every putt that you hit is going in the hole. And number two, you got to have a short memory because you're not going to make them all. And you're going to be mad when something doesn't go right and you're out of position. And you're probably not going to play bogey-free. So how do, you, how do you care and grind and let it go as quickly as possible? So you got to believe that you're the greatest putter on the planet. And when you miss a putt, you got to not care let it go and get to the next hole. That's how you. That's how you. Well, that's how you can conquer Augusta to the best of your ability. That's interesting to me because putting at Augusta is is kind of different than putting anywhere else. I mean, I, I'm saying that having never seen the course, but but at least according to the the numbers, I mean, you have to putt well to win. But there there isn't this huge correlation between um, between putting on typical, you know, PGA tour rounds, um, and putting well at Augusta. So, 
I mean, you say it's confidence, but I mean, I don't know. I mean, what what is it about Augusta that is so different putting? I mean, is it just the undulations and, and you know, making those six footers? Because you think the best golfer is going to yeah. make six footers more often. But I mean, a guy like Matsuyama's played well over the years at Augusta and he's not a good putter. No, he's not necessarily a good putter, but it's also being in the right position on the green. That's the thing with Augusta. With Augusta, you can actually hit green, but you can be completely out of Augusta. And the other thing with Augusta is is it, it makes you putt. Augusta is one of those places that can make you really putt defensively, and it's hard to putt aggressively at Augusta. But the guys who like you say, Matsuyama, who has a good record at Augusta, but isn't known as a good putter. He's also known as an aggressive putter. He's another guy, too, that has a, a hot, he runs real hot and real cold, but he also has a really short memory. So he's an aggressive putter with a short memory. There's no wonder he does pretty good at Augusta because he's not afraid to run one four or five feet by the hole. So he's like the anti-Stenson putting, huh? Yeah. 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 Augusta is one of those places. It is. Augusta is a place where the guys who don't necessarily do well at Augusta are guys who like to die the ball in the hole. Because the breaks then are so severe when you do that. That's so how about, an, how about an example of a couple guys that you think have zero shot to win at Augusta? Maybe they have the skills to win on other places on the tour. But you think the minute they get a got to Augusta, you would rule them out from winning? The one guy who is always a favorite and does really well at Augusta, but I really, I think Smith is blocked from winning there. Brant Snedeker. Why, why do you say that? I think, I think because of the heartbreak that he had the first or second year he was there, um, I think affected him in a way that he still never let, still hasn't let go of. I still think he can get into contention there, but I don't know that he. I don't know that I believe he can win at Augusta, um, even though he he can have really good results there. What about like some of the, like any of the elite golfers? I mean, Seneca's obviously. I would have said Rory in years past, but I don't know. I be, I truly believe now that as long as Rory isn't paired with Tiger, he can win at Augusta. Uh, I think if he gets paired with Tiger at Augusta, all bets are off. I think I was 100% behind Rory McIlroy last year until he made the comment Saturday night about Patrick Reed. And then I told anybody who would listen that Patrick was going to wear him out and win. Because Patrick Reed is probably the only dude who, if you give him any ammunition to play angry, he is going to beat your behind out of – he's the only golfer in the world that I know who can win a golf tournament out of spite and anger <laughs> towards – people being against him he feeds off of that he, he loves when people when he feels like someone disrespects him or says he can't do something or is against him rory i think used to be the guy who 
Rory used to have in his head what Snedeker has in his head after his collapse at Augusta and the fact that everybody kept bringing it up, bringing it up, bringing it up. I think Rory's gotten past that, but I think Rory still hasn't gotten over the Tiger hurdle. So if he gets paired with Tiger like on a Saturday or a Sunday, then it's all bets are off on Rory. Um, you say the top golfers in the world. Do I think Dustin Johnson could win at Augusta? Yes. Do I think Brooks Kepka can win at Augusta? Yes. Do I think Justin Rose could win at Augusta? Yes. Um, and the fact, here's some little karma nugget for this week at Augusta. Uh, this will be Justin Rose's normal caddy pooch. Uh, this is going to be his first week back on the bag. So after having heart surgery, I would karma-wise some good stuff for Justin Rose and Mark Fulcher, a.k.a. his caddy pooch, um, on the bag this week. Those two together have been a very formidable team for years. That's a good segue into, I think, something that Rufus wanted to talk about, which is specifically, like, how much difference do you think a caddy can make and how much as gamblers should we look at that um, going into any kind of a big tournament? A caddy potentially can save one to two shots around. A caddy can also cost one to two shots around. So the best caddies in the world take will help a golfer who's about who potentially could shoot 74. A caddy could help him shoot even par. And they also can take a golfer who could shoot a 70 and help them shoot a 68. So at Augusta, that that number potentially can be magnified by three or four strokes for two reasons. Number one, if the caddy and player have a really good trusting relationship, then under very stressful times, the caddy can really keep a player calm and keep them from getting either too high or too low. And then when it comes to think about Adam Scott and him winning the Masters, it was Stevie and the trust that he had in Stevie who gave him the read on the playoff hole on number 10. And anyone else other than Steve Williams, he ain't trusting with that line. But he trusted Stevie seeing that line, and because of it, he's wearing a green jacket. You know, that's not, and, I'm, and I don't say this. There's, people always get into an argument about, you know, well, caddies don't matter that much, and it's not that big a deal. Well, if that were the case, then there would be any Joe Schmo off the street caddying every single weekend. There wouldn't be dudes that do it professionally. So okay, there, um, are times, there are times when caddies, when, you know, there are times when caddying is easy. When a guy's playing at his best and he's hitting perfect drives and you walk down there and you get the yardage and it's the perfect club. It's, there's nothing in between nothing. And he's putting like a, you know, putting like the greatest putter in the whole world. You ain't got to do nothing as a caddy. Where caddies earn their stripes is when guys are in between clubs, not necessarily confident, or more importantly, coming off a bogey or a double. What do you say to your guy to get him back to his best? So that's where caddies earn their stripes, and that's where the best caddies in the world are. The, why the why caddies, the best caddies in the world are the best caddies in the world. Okay, so let's say let's say I'm 
betting on what was the tournament, the Mexico championship. And I learned that Spieth's caddy um, is out and his father's going to be caddying for him. How much should I like, how many strokes around would you say that would be worth? Just because for me, like as a gambler, I actually need to, I, I have to try to put a number to this thing. I've actually never really, I've never thought about that before. It's not something, you know, you know, it's not something that, that is easy to quantify, obviously, but, but what would you think? Well, see, there's a big difference between, so here's a, this is something that would be kind of difficult too. Is, is there a difference between Speed having his dad on the bag and Matt Kuchar having the local El Tucan on the bag? Absolutely. Uh, even though El Tucan didn't really read a whole bunch of Kuchar's putts, he didn't do anything like that. Um, well, he had the local knowledge. That's, yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, that's exactly right. But I don't know. I don't know that I would say Speed having his dad on the bag, it wouldn't get him any strokes. But I don't know that it would cost him any strokes. I would say maybe worst case scenario in in a situation like that, I would say a quarter to a half a stroke around. That's a lot. Uh, it, it would it would cost maybe a quarter stroke around. So maybe one stroke over the tournament, because now he's doing everything on his own. But see, there are times. The reason that I that I have to quantify that is because there are times when it's actually good for a golfer to do that because it forces them then to focus more on exactly what they're doing. It doesn't allow their mind to wander, you know, when people are doing stuff for them. I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't say that would be the best thing for Jordan Spieth every single week, but I think him and Greller work so well together and talk through things so well together that it, it wouldn't be good for him career-wise if he didn't have Greller on the bag um, because of what Greller does bring to the table and how much of a team they are. But I think every now and then, something like having his, bat, his dad on the bag um, wouldn't necessarily cost him a tournament, but it would, it's still a good experience for him to have. So... That's a, I mean, that's a tough question. There are a lot of times when a, a relationship between a player and a caddy starts going sour um, when guys make changes, depending on the reason that guys make changes, then it's one of those things where you go, well, I know this guy's going to play good this week because he just made a caddy change. So <laughs> I know it's going to sound funny, but since he just made a caddy change, he's going to be on his best behavior because it's the honeymoon phase, right? Ooh. Yeah. As opposed to guys that have been together for a long time. Like, people are like, why would why would Mickelson and Bones ever split up? Well, you know, because after a while, like, after years and years and years of together, it gets stale. You, I know what my player was going to say before I even make a comment to him. And then kind of because of that, Sometimes maybe I won't make a comment and then you got to change things up and do things different. It's like a marriage. It Did you hit like a marriage. So when guys are, when guys split up and a guy gets a new caddy on the bag, then you're like, all right, I know this guy is going to play good because he's going to be on his best behavior for this caddy and they're in the honeymoon phase. Did you hit that point? Like the sort of stale part of the relationship uh, with anybody when you were, when you were caddying full time? Yeah. I mean, the guy who I caddied the longest for Omar Uresti, we went, through a couple of periods where it was like we were together for two and a half years 
and there were there were a few times when it was just like I know what I I know what I'm supposed to say to him here, but he also knows what I'm supposed to say to him here. So, you know, do I say anything now, or do I throw the same old line out? It's kind of like, eh. you know, if we're in the same position. Like if we're two shots off the cut and it's Friday, you know, and he ain't necessarily playing his best and ain't into it and whining and crying, you know what I mean? Like you just gotta, like, all right, do I really want to put in all this work and then maybe not get nothing out of it? It's it's hard, man. It's it's a mental challenge sometimes, depending. And so, yeah, you go through those stale period or if you get something you mean even caddying for a celebrity i'll never forget i was caddying for george lopez and david faraday and our our game plan was we're not going for any part five we're going to do the zach johnson and it was at the we were playing the bottom hope at the time uh so faraday comes out and we only got like 205 to the front edge of this part five and faraday is Starts making George feel guilty about not going for the green. You know, he's like, oh, my gosh, how can you not go for the green? And then he's looking at me like, man, how are you going to let your man lay up on a hole like this? And, you know, it's such a short, easy shot. Blah, blah. And then George is looking at me like, well, should, what should we do? You want to go for it here and stuff? And I was like, well, now we got to go for it, right? Let's, all right, let's do this, man. Come on. And, of course, he takes a three-wood and snap hooks it in the water. And it's like 30 yards, not even close to the green. And Faraday laughs and goes skipping off, F-bombing both of us. And now George don't talk to me for the next three holes. And I'm mad, too, because I let him do it, like, because knowing it was on my lap, in a, in a sense. And so, like, for three holes, we didn't talk. Now, we, we bust the gut laughing about that nowadays. But at the time, it was like, you know, maybe I shouldn't caddy for this dude no more. <laughs> Even though he's like my big brother. You know, we was so mad at the time. And me, and in the middle of a tournament, me and Scott Pierce did the same thing in Puerto Rico, where it was a par five. It was kind of a sketchy lie. I thought he was going to be able to keep it low instead of punching out. It was on a Friday, and we were kind of in position where we could, you know, go make a run at the top of the leaderboard. And we made a mistake, and this thing ricocheted off a tree and went into a hazard. And we went from an opportunity where we could have made par at worst, where we walked off with a double boat. And, like, after that par five, you know, we went through a phase where it was a little touch and go there, you know, about trusting one another and, and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, most caddy player relationships that last more than six weeks end up at a period like that. So, Michael, going into uh, the Masters this year, are there any sort of new caddy relationships or troubling relationships that you know about that might give some insight into the things that, that um, you know, the public doesn't necessarily know about? If you say anything good, we won't air it. We'll just keep it to ourselves. And... <laughs> no, I'm just trying to think. I mean, that the fact that Fooch is back on Justin Rose's bag um, and it's at the Masters is is big time. I think that's the biggest kind of nugget behind the curtain that nobody really knows about that I can that I can throw out to everybody. I don't necessarily think there's any kind of like 
I'm trying to think if there's any caddy player relationship that's a little stressed going into the Masters that John Rahm. Oh, absolutely not. No. Okay. Good. Uh, I actually, I would say the opposite for that. I know people, people tried to make a, a thing out of, so, and this was partly my fault too. When the John Rom Adam Hayes thing happened at the time, in that moment as a caddy, when you're not inside the ropes with that group and as someone who has seen, as a caddy who has seen stuff like that happen, the biggest fear is that the interaction that happened between the two of them would then cause the player to lose faith and confidence in the caddy, even though the caddy was right. Sometimes, even though the caddy's right, the player in his mind is like, I can't trust this dude to have my back when I want to make the play that I want to make. And so I put out on Twitter, I hope in the long run this doesn't cost Adam's job. Because it's happened before. What people failed to see later then was I talked to both of them after the round and put out on Twitter as well and on our page on, on ESPN that I was happy to say that the relationship the two of them have and seeing the two of them together not only puts to bed my fear, also gives me confidence in their future where I believe if you remember when Rory collapsed at the Masters, the next major, the dude dropped the hammer, and that was with the same caddy. I would make Rom one of the favorites going into Augusta because now if there's any kind of question of what is going to be the right play here, he's going to defer to his caddy, Adam, who's going to make sure Adam being one of the best caddies on tour and one of the best things that's happened to John Rahm, Adam is going to make sure that the worst score they make on a hole, if they're in between, is a par. Which, when you say, what's a caddy's worth? The difference between a double bogey and a par the last time I checked is two shots. So a caddy not letting a disaster happen is also worth two shots as opposed to, you know, helping a guy make an eagle or a birdie. So when it comes to John Rahm and Adam Hayes, I would say because of what happened at the Players' Championship, if Rahm gets into contention, that relationship between the two of them would give Rom actually a leg up against another caddy and player maybe who don't have the relationship that they have. Interesting. Um, can go, shifting back a little bit towards uh, sort of specific um, Augusta National stuff. Um, I was curious. You know, there, there's this narrative that's been out there for a while um, about Augusta favoring got like right-handers that draw the ball, a right-to-left ball flight. Uh, you know, I was I was curious if you think that's sort of an overblown narrative, or if that's something that actually does hold true. Because for me, I mean, you know, I'm I'm looking at things from a numbers perspective, and and it's a lot harder to see. You know, you know, if I can see where the ball went, you know, but I can't really necessarily see the the shape of the shot. Um, and so, right, 
the interesting thing to me though is that Patrick Reed was is like a massive drawer of the golf ball, but last yep. year and he's always had trouble at Augusta, and then last year he was trying to cut it and ended up winning. So, yep. All right, here's the easiest way for me to describe this one. Who's got the most green jackets of all time? Jack Nicholas, right? That's what I was going to guess, but I didn't want to be wrong. No, man, your, your guess would have been correct. And what did Nicholas hit, a fade or a draw? Fade. Fade is for the Jack fade. Okay. So if, if a dude can win 16 jackets hitting the ball from left to right, then I'm going to say that dude probably knows what he's doing around there. And you can make that golf course as long as you want to. But, you know, people look at Phil Mickelson and who's won three, uh, Bubba Watson, who's won two. They're lefties that like to hit a fade. And you would go, oh, yeah, but, but both of them also have the ability to turn it over. Both of them also have the ability to hit draws when they want to on command, like, I mean, Bubba's the only one who really has a tough time hitting the straight. Not a tough time, but he doesn't like to hit the ball dead straight. What do you have? You have 13, which sets up well for the right to left, although now people are just going over everything, right? I've seen Bubba do yep. that. I think DJ. I mean, there are some holes, though, that do sort of – that are better for a, for a right to left, though. Yeah, oh, definitely. I mean, think about number two. If you take it from right to left, down down that, if you aim it at the bunker and you hit a draw off of that bunker and get it running down that hill, it's, you're, you're going to be way, way down there. But what nobody talks about on both number two and number 13 is if you overdraw it, you're in the hazard both times. Good point. Both times you're going to be in the hazard. So it's one of those where that's Augusta daring you to hit a draw when you don't necessarily have to. You don't have to. If you hit a dead straight ball and work it down that tree line on the left-hand side, and it's either dead straight or even falling just a little bit right, it's going to be past the bunker, and then the fairway kicks it left for you. So the fairway actually does your work. But it on, sets on up 13? Are, we, are we talking 13 here? Well, both. I mean, thirteen. I feel like if you Both. hit a driver straight, you're in. You're in the. You're in the trees. Well, no. If you hit a driver straight, but I'm saying if you hug that, if you ha hug the left side of those trees with the on number two with the driver, the fairway kicks it left. If you hit a three wood with a on thirteen down the tree line, it's gonna kick it to everything works to the left. And even if you hit a perfect drive with a little draw on 13, you're still going to be standing at a really awkward angle to try and go at that green in two. But, I mean, this is what guys are able to do anyway. They are the best players in the world. But would you say out of 18 holes, if two holes set up great for a draw, does that mean that a guy who can draw the ball is going to be a favorite at a golf course? I'd say no. But but maybe but but is there any? I mean, I'm I'm not saying that guys that don't draw the ball can't win or anything like that. But I mean, would you say all else equal, someone that prefers a draw or prefers a fade is has a better shot? No. Is there is there there's no advantage at all? No. Okay. No. Here's the thing. So I love I like Patrick Reed hits a draw and he went to Augusta. 
and he tr- was trying to hit a fade. That's what he wanted to do. And think about the the hole that means the most at Augusta National. That's the 18th hole. And what does that shot require? It requires you aiming it at the bunker in the chute and hitting a low baby cut if you're a right-handed golfer. If you're a left-handed golfer, you got to aim it hit a little bit of a draw at the bunker. That's what that hole requires there. So, and at the at the very first hole where your nerves are at their peak for a right-handed golfer, one of the best shots that you can hit at the first hole is if you aim it at the trees on the left-hand side and hit a little baby cut. That's the best thing that you can do at that at that hole, which is one of the reasons why Tiger's always in the trees on the left-hand side because he aims it at that trees and flips his hands because he's so jacked up. <laughs> <laughs> I love this perspective you're giving us here. This is definitely the caddy perspective. Um, so I've like I've been betting on golf for a number of years, and and I've always had trouble with uh, you know backing guys that aren't particularly clutch. So you know I've thrown away a lot of money on on Furyk and Sergio over the years. So is- <laughs> yeah, their ATM machines. That's that's the whole way what we talked about in Europe. But each way, those dudes are what we caddies call their ATM machines. Like yeah. they're gonna make cuts and they're gonna make top tens and top fives, but are they gonna win a ton? Yeah, not so much. Do you, I mean is is that sort of a? I mean with Furyk, I mean it it. I mean I feel like part of it is just not being great under pressure, right? But I, I do realize with Furyk, it's just his style. He plays a very conservative brand of golf. He hits fairways. He hits greens. He doesn't he doesn't make mistakes basically. Um, you know, Sergio makes mistakes um, a little more often, but. But is there a skill in predicting which guy is going to be able to hold on and win when he's got the lead? I mean, like Paul Casey went 10 years without winning, and his two wins have been, well, actually one recently, I guess he won because the other guy collapsed more. But but the other win, I think he just put, you know, he he, uh, put up a really low number and then posted, and and so he never really had to play with that lead. Like, is is there – Yes. Are there guys, there's some guys that are just better at that. Well, I think the, the best stat to look at is punt runners. Who are the best guys that on Sunday, when they have a two-shot lead or more, close the most? That's, the, that's one of the best, for me, stats to look at. Or, or the other thing that I do is how – trying to think what's the, what's the best way to describe this. Um, well, Michael, you don't have a lot of – opportunities for you know to be a front runner like right now you have Corey connors leading the uh texas open and i hope he closes it out um but well yeah that, here's he's the never thing been, with Corey yeah. connor like he had a four shot lead and then bogey three in a row four in a row and he, yeah four and he, was, yeah it was three and, 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 and then he birdied but, and then he birdied three straight after that yeah so that's kind of the roller coaster ride that happens with and he's one of those guys too He'd been in this position before and spit the bit. And so now he's also been in this position. So when he bogeyed four in a row, it was easy to look at, at least when I saw him, the look on his face that I saw was not the look of a guy who was going to necessarily spit the bit and lose the golf tournament. He was, he looked like he was going to be okay being confident in what he was doing. So I felt kind of good about that. Paul Casey, you said his name, Paul Casey. Paul Casey is one of those guys, if he has 
a two, even a three-shot lead going into Sunday, I am not confident at all in his ability to close when he's out front. Okay, can I ask you if you had to rank the five most clutch golfers and then the five least clutch golfers on tour, who would they be? It's impossible. Here's the thing. It's impossible to rank the most, the least clutch golfers. I mean, Casey has to be up there. Furick, Sergio. Um, I mean, I can, yeah, but I can like, just go back in my like records and said, find a lot of these guys. Well, here's, here's the thing with guys that, <laughs> Yeah, but again, how many opportunities do these guys have as front runners? Spencer Levine. Like for, well, yeah, but that setting. Yeah. That was a once in a lifetime chance for him. Yeah, and I felt like I'm not gonna lie, man. When I saw him in Phoenix after that happened, I just hugged him. I just hugged him. You know, because I I felt for I felt for I felt empathy for what he was feeling after the fact, knowing that he might never have that opportunity again. So and what that what it meant for him and what he did wrong, you know, that, that whole hindsight thing, man, sometimes it hurts. So I just hugged that dude. And ironically enough, when Kyle Stanley, when he had his collapse uh, at the farmer's insurance open, I hugged him and told him the next week on Monday he was going to win, and he did. You remember, he won the next week in Phoenix. Yeah, so, yeah. I hope you took that to the bank. You know, he knows what to do, so that's a guy who. I mean, the clutch guys who, when they're up near the top of the leaderboard on a Sunday, the dudes who I will normally always say it's probably over. Brooks Kepka, even though DJ has had his collapses in the past, I still will not bet against DJ if he's within a shot or two of the lead. Um, going into Sunday, or if he has a one or two shot lead going into Sunday, I think that dude is clutch. Patrick Reed is another one. The newest guy who I would put on that list would be Bryson DeChambeau. When Bryson is up at the top of the leaderboard, he's the only uh, he's the dude too that I think when when he's in his own head, he's awesome. When he's playing good. When he's got a lead on Sunday, so I would I would put those guys up there. And now that Fooch is back on the bag, I would put Justin Rose up there as well. Um, no Tiger, the greatest closer of all time. But you said the yeah, but is that today or if if Tiger had a lead going into Sunday, do you think he's blowing it at Augusta? Just in general, I mean, Augusta is a lot easier to close than other places, and like the the lead, the winner normally comes from that final group. But yeah, if Tiger got the lead on Sunday. I ain't betting against him. Actually, no. <laughs> if I was being completely honest, if Tiger had the lead on Sunday, I'm not betting for him, and I'm not betting against him. Okay. I'm not laying money on a period. I just wouldn't do it. You know who? You know who's a, clo- a closer that, that a dude who is when this guy gets up the top of the lead, the guy who just is a stone cold killer when it comes to nothing affecting him whatsoever, Francesco Molinari. 
Huh. If that dude's up there at the top of the leaderboard, shut it down, yo. He's leaving with the trophy. No ifs, no ands, no buts. That dude, nothing phases him when he's hitting on all cylinders going into Sunday with Lee. Like, people forget that he was paired with Tiger, and Tiger was doing what he was doing at the Open Championship, and Francesco did it staring him down. And then put it on him in the Ryder Cup again. People forget, too, Francesco beat Tiger in the Ryder Cup once before when they played heads up. Well, Francesco was a guy that was, I mean, you're talking about, you talk about these ATMs versus lottery tickets. He was an ATM for a long time. He was a super consistent guy. And then he's, you know, he's added some driving distance in the last few years and suddenly is able to win tournaments. I mean, he, he was kind of like the, like a Furek type or Kuchar type before who was just like consistent, but you know, but yeah, but now guy that could close. And then suddenly, I mean, because of this little stretch, we're saying, Oh, suddenly he is a guy that can close. Well, I think what, for me, what, convince me is him being able to make big punts in big moments like driving is driving distance does matter but for me with with guys at this level there are guys who there are guys who don't blink at an eight footer to save par and there are guys who blink and that's something you gotta either you have it like Jordan just had it when he came out Jordan you give him Back in the day, you give him a 12-footer to save par and keep the round going, it was going dead center with the perfect speed. And that was something that, you know, you can't teach or isn't necessarily learned. But Francesco learned that. Francesco was, like you said, he was a real consistent golfer. He wasn't a good putter. Yeah, who would be shaky. He would get shaky with, you know, 10-foot birdie putts if they meant to grab the lead alone or to – grab a share of the lead or to stay tied for the lead. But once he made a couple of them and you could see kind of the look in his face where then it became, Oh, well, this is just like cutting on a Thursday because it is. Yeah. All of that stuff is all self inflicted. Well, is it okay. It's a former, it's also self inflicted. Is a former caddy. I mean, have you, is there anything you can do there when, when a guy gets into one of these situations to try to say, Hey, like, let's do, this is just a regular putt, do your thing. Like, you know, if, especially if you're, if you're caddying for a guy that, you know, may, you know, might be feeling a little bit of, of, of nerves in that situation. And it, but that honestly, it, it's so situational. Is the guy coming off a bogey or is he coming off a birdie? And now he's got a putt for part of, kind of keep the run going is he coming off a couple of pars has he missed a couple of birdie chances before all of those situational aspects really come into play when you're caddying that's why I'm this is one of the subtle things about caddying that really makes great caddies it's knowing not only knowing the perfect thing to say at the perfect time but it's also knowing when not to say anything and let the player be in their head. Yeah. That's, that, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So when you ask a question like that, like what's the situation? What hole are we on? If it's on Sunday on the 17th hole and we got a one shot lead and this punch for par and he hasn't called me in for help with the read, I'm not going to go over there and just 
say something in his ear, you know? There's a lot of nuance to it. But it's it's just like that's yeah. inviting disaster. Yeah, that's inviting disaster. So um, I I know you're a busy man, and um, well, I guess you're you're driving through the middle of Florida. But before <laughs> before we let you go, can we get like this is a gambling podcast. It's an analyticsy podcast, but it's a gambling podcast. Um, who's your top five? And and can and then also can we get a sleeper pick? So a golfer that's a hundred to one or or. Uh, or more of a long shot, who you think might might pull it off? Well, I haven't looked at the odds as I, I they can are help you today. So, all right, cool. Um, I would. I don't know if I'd say. I I don't know if I would give five dudes as a lot, but I would say without giving my winner away for ESPN.com, I, that Justin Rose pooch man, that karma is chewing on me big time. So, I gotta put Justin Rose up there because of how well he's been playing. He's been playing pretty lights out. As inconsistent as Jordan Spieth has been, the flashes that he has shown this past week at San Antonio means he's close. And now he's going back to somewhere where he's comfortable. The other guy who came close last year, even though he doesn't have a major on his resume, who I think is potentially someone who could leave there with the green jacket on would be Ricky Fowler. Okay. We got three. I, th- I thought you were going to say Chucky Hoffman, actually, for a second. I was like, is he's a guy that – Charlie Hoffman. Yeah. Yeah. Nah. He's, he's, he's put himself in contention there a few times. Yeah. He's, yeah. He has put himself in contention there. I don't know if if you said that was my last $20 and what I put it on Charlie Hoffman. <laughs> no, I, I wouldn't either. Um, but, but let's say, let's say since, okay, let's say somebody outside the top 20, basically, um, meaning let's say someone, um, I'm trying to figure out how about this? Where's, someone, where's hey, where's Tony Fina? Well, I, I don't want to give away where my numbers are right now, but, but he, he had a subpar performance in Texas. So he's probably going to be right in the edge there. Perfect. You think he's got a shot? He, he, he's not playing through injury this time. Well, unless he hurts himself hey. again on a par three contest. <laughs> this time, if he makes a hole in one, he's just going to sit down. <laughs> yeah. He's going to stop right there. Either that or he's going to be crawling on all fours on every hole. And in that case, he'll probably get a splinter or something ridiculous in his hand or something. But, like, yeah, uh, he's a he's another one. I don't care how he's playing anywhere else. He just seems to be so comfortable. At Augusta. How could how could somebody how could somebody that their first time there go through what he went through and still finish top five? Like that's not supposed to happen. Which tells you kind of the internal gumption that that dude has. So yeah. Yeah, he's an incredibly um, consistent golfer. Yeah. And not he he has a very short memory. Seems like a cool customer. He is really cool, really, really down to earth. Just a good, he's a good human being. He's just a good human being. Well, Michael, thank you so much for joining us. Um, I've been been very excited to have you for a long time, and and I'm I'm glad we finally got you on. And uh, you want to tell people where they can find you in your podcast? Absolutely. So uh, I'm easy to find on Twitter and Instagram. You can find me at ESPN Caddy, all one word, ESPN C A D D I E. Uh, the podcast that I host 
with Matt Barry. It's called Maddie and the Caddy. Uh, you can find that where you find podcasts everywhere. We also do uh, Instagram and Twitter as well. And then I have a show with Pat Perez, who unfortunately did not qualify and is hurt for the Masters, so he doesn't get to play the Masters this year. But our show is on SiriusXM every Tuesday night on the PGA Tour Network from 8 to 10 p.m., and that's called Out of Bounds. So I'm all over the place. I pretty much do everything except park cars on Tuesday. So <laughs> if you're looking for me, you can find me. <laughs> well, thank you so much. And and one of these days you're going to have to get me into Augusta, huh? Well, that's I, – I, the, the no response says it all. Anyway. <laughs> nah, here's, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Anytime I tell people if you ever want to come to a tournament, the very last thing that I always say to them is, there's only one tournament that I don't ever ask for passing, ever. I just don't, I don't do it. I just because it's such a, it's so hallowed ground and it's impossible. It's just, that's one of those things where it's like, and that's Augusta. I could get you, if you want, if you want to come to the U.S. Open, if you want to come to the Open Championship, if you want to come to the PGA, any PGA Tour event. Like the players' championships off the hook. Phoenix, you got to, you know, we did, me and Rufus had so much fun at Phoenix hanging out and stuff. And that was just a regular tour event. Like those are fun to go. That was a lot of fun. Yeah. You know, when you go to the Masters, it's like going to church on Easter Sunday and Christmas Eve combined. Like, you're not going to wear your club clothes, and you're not going to act a fool and do crazy stuff there. So the Masters might not necessarily be one of the places where you're like, hey, let's go to the Masters and hang out. Like, it's not – I wouldn't call church on Christmas Eve and Easter Sunday fun, but it's an amazing experience. So I'm not saying no, but I ain't saying yes either. <laughs> Okay. Well, Mike, thanks a lot for thanks a lot for uh, for for being on. It's uh, it's it's been great. Thanks, Mike. It was really anytime, uh, really interesting stuff. Thanks anytime, man. We are anytime. Look, like I said, we can talk whenever, man. Golf, this golf gambling thing is becoming a thing. All right, Michael. Thank you.